0: You are listening to Upzoned. Hey, everybody! This is Chuck Marone filling in this week for Abby Kinney. Abby is taking a a very well deserved and much needed vacation. We applaud her, and I maybe should just start this show by pointing out the amazing work that she's done on this show. Over the last, uh, I don't know, year and a half, I've actually come to kind of take for granted a little bit how much prep work she does and and just how fantastic she is at getting the show up and running every week and hosting it. She does just a fantastic job. So she is out. And I have invited my friend, John Reuter, a board member of Strong Towns, uh, to come on and, and chat with us. John, welcome to UpZone. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's a long time
1: though uh, since you and I've been on a podcast together.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think we try to (laughs) we try to avoid doing that too much, don't we? You've been a very nice guest on Upzone a few times. I've listened to you actually and then thought,
1: yeah, that that was that was that was pretty smart. So, well, we'll we'll see how today goes um, (laughs) and whether it's uh, you know which side it falls on. So this week we're going to chat
0: about an article from NBC News. It was written by Phil McCosland. The title of the article is Cut in Infrastructure Money for Communities Hurt by Highways Disappoints Advocates. As we are sitting here recording this, the U.S. Senate is, I think, in the final hours or at least the final days of debating a 2,700-plus page infrastructure bill. That bill is part of a compromise between Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans. Uh, It has a bipartisan kind of flavor to it. One of the things that was in the original American Jobs Plan put forth by the administration, and then I think in House versions, but I'm not positive about this, but in in original negotiations was this uh, idea of a reconnecting communities initiative, $20 billion that was designed to kind of undo some of the damage, at least start the process of undoing some of the damage that had been done to urban neighborhoods, particularly minority neighborhoods, during the uh, early highway building days, in the negotiations, that amount was reduced from twenty billion down to one billion. So, in a one trillion dollar bill, now we have basically a, a token amount of money for this reconnecting communities initiative. There's there's been some blowback on this, and I've seen our friends at the Congress for the New Urbanism uh, raising some stink about this, as well as some other groups. Uh, this article gets into some of the disappointment, and I, I just want to read this one quote. Uh, right up at the top that I thought was was very telling. Uh, this is from a, a group in Rochester, New York, that was looking at using some of this money to fix and, and, and repair some damage that had been done in their inner loop neighborhood as part of the Interstate 490. And the people that were interviewed as part of this, they said it it felt like they were listening to us and by they meaning their Senate delegation. It felt like they were listening to us, to the communities banging on the table and saying these changes were going to happen. But now it's like, is there any hope or gain in government? And I I, th- I think there's a little bit of disillusion here over what was promised and what is now being delivered, particularly at this uh, you know, in this aspect of transportation funding. John, I I want to ask you just to kind of kick things off, to maybe talk about, you know, what what should the expectations have been going in on this reconnecting communities initiative? And should people be disappointed or or not? Is this a Lucy and Charlie Brown moment, or is this something else? I think
1: people should be disappointed. I also don't think it's over yet necessarily, right? We hear Peter DeFazio, who's the chair of the Transportation Committee on the House side, pushing back and saying that it needs to be additional edits here. And so I think people should keep, I think people should keep having their voices heard and should keep speaking out, even as, as a bill goes through that doesn't have the funding that was necessary goes to the Senate side. There's possibilities, right? There's a long way from being at the end of the end of the road, so to speak, if you'll apologize for the, I'll apologize for the pun, I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think this shows us where the consensus around transportation is at in the country and how far it still needs to go to get to the place that we need to be, right? All over right now, we have lots of op-ed columnists and senators from both parties and representatives and, you know, groups celebrating this infrastructure package. And look at how we came across together across party lines and did this thing. And this is just one one thing we can all agree on. And I think what's disappointing is when you look at how that was shaped, when you look at the transit funding that got cut out, when you look at this funding in terms of actually restoring communities that got cut out, the center point on transportation Um, and infrastructure and how we talk about it is still really disconnected from the actual needs that people have in their communities, right? And so I think there's a, it shows the continued need for our work. I will say the fact that there's, that this was even in an original draft, the fact that the majority leader in the Senate um, said this should be there, the fact that the president of the United said this should be there, like represents real progress in terms of moving the political balance. But that's, that's sort of cold comfort when we're not actually seeing it reflected in the policy that ends up getting passed.
0: Let me throw my cynical blinders on here, and and let you push back on this, because I, I, I have, you know, I've written pretty extensively about the bill, the transportation components of it in particular, and my cynicism up front has been, you know, th- this is the one program that seemed to have some redeeming quality to it, as opposed to you know the highway funding and even the way that the transit money is being allocated. I have some concerns with. Uh, but But, this was money that to me was kind of earmarked towards undoing the damage, right so the federal government comes in, pays for and and does you know basically instigate a whole lot of damage on urban areas and one of the more redeeming things that we could do would be to restore those places go go in and fix those roadss, fix those highways, reconnect those neighborhoods we We did some work on the Austin I-35 project and the idea of instead of adding 12 more lanes, you know, lowering that road, capping it and reconnecting those neighborhoods. This would be a multi-billion dollar project. And we've applauded that as something that if the federal government is going to spend a lot of money on transportation, let's put ourselves in a position where we're building wealth, we're restoring communities, we're actually lowering our long-term maintenance costs and we're getting something for it. This seemed like it aligned really well with all of the, I'm going to say talk, and I want you to go ahead and push back on this, but it seemed like a lot of ja ja talk about, well, you know, we're going to put equity first. We're going to make sure that we make good on these promises, and we are going to, you know, the neighborhoods that have been left behind, they're going to be front and center in this bill. To me, 20 billion did not live up to that hype if we were really serious about this, that dollar amount, 20 billion, would have been a lot better. Now we're talking about 1 20th of that. And it feels to me almost like, uh, not only was this kind of just token talk to kind of you know market a bill, but it rings even more hollow for me today, seeing how it has worked its way out. What am I missing? What in my cynicism am I overlooking?
1: I have a couple thoughts about this. One, I think it is really disappointing. Two, I agree that uh, that twenty billion dollars wasn't enough. I think I think you're right about that, and I think that's a I think that's I think that's the right way to think about it. I will say, twenty billion dollars was enough to really show what could be done through these restorative projects that we would actually see. I believe, and I think you believe, and you've written about this, right, Chuck? Like. If we'd actually seen that $20 billion deployed and actually done some of these like processes that reconnect neighborhoods, the economic growth that came from those projects would be so much higher than the projects that were about adding more road miles, that it would start to really help give a model of how we can think about transportation expenditures and what we're doing in this country. With a billion dollars, hopefully we'll still get an example or two of that, but it's not not at the scale that I think is really necessary or, the, or the, that you'd want to see um, to really be able to do it. The other thing I'd say about this is, look, advocates in the house did pass a bill um, that included this money inside of it, right? You actually did see uh, transportation advocates starting to do that. And that is uh, th- that is the sign of people changing. That is the sign of people saying, wow, we need to really relook and reform transportation in a serious way. I think just frustratingly, you know, despite well-intentioned folks in the Senate side, they weren't able to get the votes when they, using the method they decided to do it, which which I think um, was true. And it's not just the number, right? It's also, from my understanding of this article is, and I've not dived deeply into this, but they're not just upset about the number having been reduced, but also some of the policies that were inside of it being reduced too, which under the current rules in the Senate, right, it requires like a 60% vote. You have to have 60% of the Senate agree to actually make those policy changes that would actually give communities more voice and actually have them have a role as these restoration projects took place. So I think both, it's not just the number that went down, but also some of those strong policies is my understanding um, that have come down here from reading this article. And so that's, um, I think both those things are disappointing. So- but, but I don't know that's the same thing as like, I think so often in politics, we blame the people who tried to do something instead of the people who tried to block it when the people who blocked it were successful. I don't think that leads us to better solutions, right? Like you, you can't, like, like, I don't think that means the people who were trying to make it happen didn't really want to make it happen or didn't really believe that it should happen. Um, it meant that they could not get that deal done. That they could not get the votes where they needed to. So I think that's part of it, right? I don't think that's all of it. I also think there's a need for us to elevate the issue and make it more important and, and change that consensus. But yeah. I was going to ask about that. I realized that, you know, I live in a
0: little bit of a transportation policy bubble. I mean, I, I converse a lot with people who care deeply about these issues. And in in the groups that we have a lot of discussions with, the idea of restoring neighborhoods is fairly self-evident. Should the takeaway from this then be that this is not self-evident for most of the country, that that you know the we we couldn't get sixty percent of the senators to actually agree that this, but we could get sixty percent of them to agree that expanding highways and uh, putting more money into these legacy automobile programs is self-evident. Is is that the takeaway here? I think that
1: is the takeaway, and I think what's weird about it is, I think it's really disconnected from what people know in their communities are true, right? And part of it is that we just go into such autopilot on highway spending, right? So there isn't even the moment to like reflect of like, what's actually happening here? What's actually important here? Um, Because what I've seen over the years, right, is strong towns will come to a community and we will start a dialogue somewhere. And as we start to ask, ask people to think about transportation in their community, start thinking about planning decisions in their community, um, like there's that great chart, Chuck, that you'll bring up in your talks of like, How do transportation engineers think about things versus how do we want people to think about things, right? And what are the priorities? And you look at the priorities and they're almost inversed of what traffic engineers are prioritizing versus what people in communities are prioritizing, right? It's like, you know, like it's like speed versus safety. And it's like people actually care more about safety. They care more about like what it's like to live on the street rather than how quickly can you travel through the street, right? That's very much that experience there. And for whatever reason, those community consensuses that exist don't seem to have fully gotten where we need them to be in terms of where government decisions are made. And that's true, definitely true in the federal government. But unfortunately, it's also true at city halls around the country, where when you look at what projects local officials are often arguing for, they're also telling their members, hey, we need more highway spending. Hey, we need to widen the street. Hey, we need, you know, hey, we need a a parking garage rather than how do we make it to the communities more walkable? How do we find ways to actually restore this community and actually, you know, create platforms where people can create wealth it's much more the idea of how can we people travel more quickly through this so our advocates and our local our local leaders to our federal leaders often look a lot more like robert moses than jane jacobs still to this day
0: right right the thing that makes that list of values the most compelling is how we ask the audience to 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 list theirs in real time and I always note that I can't change the slide presentation. So what it is, is I, you know, I say when engineers design a, design a road, they start with the design speed and then the volume, and then they look up what a safe route would be, and then they say, how much is this gonna cost? And when you ask people, uh, people will say, you start with safety and basically be willing to compromise on speed and volume in order to achieve safety and cost. And it's the exact opposite of the engineer's values.
1: It happens every single time, right? Yeah, yeah. And yet, and yet, on a regular basis, how much are there cries out about transportation? Like, if people take a moment to think about it, they go, this doesn't make any sense. But one of the problems is, is how deep our consensus as a country is about this, how much we've all fallen into this infrastructure cult, right, that you've written about. And so that we as communities just aren't consciously asking these questions. And I think one of our jobs is to start making those questions get asked. And I think one of the, so, so I guess what I would say is like, What's exciting about this moment is that the question is starting to get called of, hey, should we start thinking about this differently? And what's disappointing about this is that the answer was, eh, maybe a little bit, but not too much, right? right and that's that's right. a very disappointing answer. Um, but the fact that the question is being asked at all is, th- these advocates in the story deserve credit for it, right? They helped actually make it to so this Question's actually getting to that stage. It's actually happening at that level. And I don't want us to, uh, you know, making a billion dollars show up in a federal bill isn't having done nothing. It also isn't nearly enough for what we need to address this problem and it's woefully insufficient. So there's a, there's a complication that we have to recognize both those things in that paradox at the same time of right of making progress and also recognizing that it's, that it's too little and it's not you know and, and it's not fast enough. So so let me ask
0: you let me ask you this cuz th- this is a, another thing that I don't grasp and understand about maybe maybe the 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 way politics the way bills proceed in this kind of system. When I hear you know, for example, the President say, "We have 40,000 bridges that are deficient or, or in need of repair." and that comes from the American Society of Civil Engineers, and, and I believe that number. I think that number is accurate, and if anything, it maybe underestimates the problem to a degree, particularly because this problem is an accelerating problem, not just a static problem. Like next year we will have more than 40,000. you know it will continue to grow. But then the funding is for 10,000. And, and this is, you know, in a monumental size bill, the funding is to fix 10000 and there's this sense that, you know, this is what we're going to fund transportation as a massive investment, and we're not going to come back next year and do this again. I mean, this is a big, long-term program. You see the same thing on highways, where it's, I don't know the exact number, but I know that the proposed funding was around 20% of what it would take to fix the backlog of highway maintenance. And then this actually funds something around 12% of that. And a lot of that money is going to get diverted to building new as well. So it's, you know, you're funding a tiny fraction of what you've identified. How does the conversation become, the problem is is huge. We're only going to fund a tiny portion of that. And the thing that would actually transition us to like a, a different system or a different way of doing things, we're going to completely gut that money. Like I, I find this entire approach to be incoherent from a transportation standpoint. And I, I really don't know how to process that, because I don't think these people are dumb, and I don't think that they don't care. Why does this seem so out of touch with what the actual need is?
1: I think some of this stuff comes out of the reality of what people can get, and then they try to make themselves, right, or try to argue the case as best that they can of what they can get other people to agree to who may not share that priority to the same degree. I, I don't know. Um, the one that's most disappointing to me, I think, you know, the bridges are what they are. And certainly that, certainly there's a problem there. Um, and certainly we could reduce the costs of repairing those bridges if we weren't also trying to expand them at the same time, right? If we just try to it fix would the bridges easier instead of to add, do right? right? <laughs> if, we weren't, if we weren't trying to also add lane miles to them simultaneously. Yeah. So it's like we have, we have some inflated costs there for each of these bridges. And we could, we could repair more bridges if we just repaired the bridges instead of making them wider on a belief of ever-expanding, never-ending traffic increases. The other one, though, is, um, is lead and water right? Which is, which is like something that everyone agrees that we should have it so people don't have lead pipes. Like, we know this is a public health crisis. We know we should fix this. And it would cost somewhere between, there's some debate about this between the industry and, and numbers that came out earlier, right? But somewhere between 45 and $60 billion to fix all the lead pipes in the country. And the bill, the bill that came through, the bipartisan bill, includes $15 billion, And yet still includes the claim that it's going to fix all the lead pipes in the country. And that's just not true. Right. There's right. not enough money there to do it. You can't solve the problem. And so it feels like in many ways, our willingness to do what's necessary to have even the method of even the traditional development pattern that we're, that we're not, you know, even before we get to that question, of are you going to keep us born suburban, suburban pattern? Are you going to go to a traditional development pattern? Even without that, there's still this um, fundamental disconnect there in terms of the commitments that we need to make. Because the idea that people in, in the United States are going to be drinking dirty water, uh, because we aren't going to replace their pipes feels frankly anywhere in the world, but we ought to be able to figure that out in this country. This is something we ought to be able to come together on and be able to figure out. And and we're not, right? Um and so if we can't figure that out, it's not that surprising that we can't figure out how to make sure we replace all our bridges or how you know what I mean? Like like in the scale of things.
0: Right. in, in a one trillion dollar bill, we can't, you know, take care of the drinking water thing. And that I will agree with you, it is an odd one because it's not like it's a you know, there's some technological revolution. You listen to the automated vehicle people and you listen to, you know, some of the high speed rail advocates and some of this stuff they're talking about is actually like a a different version of transportation. We were drinking water out of pipes 2000 years ago, and we will be drinking water out of pipes likely, uh, you know, 2000 years from now. The idea of fixing this is not like you know this is something that absolutely has to be done at some point, and there's a huge, um, particularly in the older neighborhoods where these things are, there's not only a huge need but there's a huge opportunity presented by it, and a, a, a rather large return on investment in a lot of cases for it. I've struggled with that one. Like I don't get why, I don't get why you would give you know extra money to, in a sense, the the growth you know, the, the frontage roads and interchange kind of system, and you wouldn't fix
1: drinking water? I, yeah, I don't. I struggle with that one, John. But this shows you how deep this, um, you know, as, as you've named it, and I, I love the, this term because I think it's so true, the infrastructure cult is gone and how cultish it is, yeah, it's right? Cultish. Because yeah. it, it really isn't based on some like critical examination of what's necessary in this moment, it's based on a consensus. And then it's even more based on a consensus. I think this is an important thing to note, right? Which you've heard, like um, Representative DeFazio has talked about this too, how the people in the Senate who wrote this bill aren't actually the people from those germane committees who actually work on transportation issues all the time. And so what that means is the version of the bills that we've got in here, for better or worse, and I think there actually are some areas where it's for better but often for worse, as we're talking about today, um, just reflect the consensus of the country. They don't reflect some like deep examination about infrastructure. They just reflect a political reality of like where is the political consensus right now of how we should do transportation spending? What's the what's the middle of that conversation? And the bill that we see is here's what the centrist view of policy looks like. And the interesting thing about the centrist view on the topic of infrastructure is it's neither the conservative view nor the liberal view, which would actually be much more similar yeah. and and th- with each other than they are with like this view, right? You could actually spend less money and give people better infrastructure. Now, that said you're still gonna end up having to, you know, per a bridge is what I'm saying. Not less money overall. There's, there's no, as you point I, out, you totally, a lot more right. money over there. But yeah. you could spend less money per a bridge, less money per a neighborhood. You could restore these neighborhoods and actually build more economic wealth, right? Those goals. Actually, can spread across that gap there, and you're hearing voices start to emerge on the on those spectrums. And my hope is that they can, that, that eventually we can see the center move, um, and a new and a new center can be formed. Um, similar to what we saw. I mean, I, I don't want to cloud the issues here, but I just think it's a good example for advocates to think about. Um, similar to what happened on criminal justice reform, where we actually saw the right and the left come together when they said, "Oh, wait, we can save money and we can increase justice." Maybe we should do that. The same dynamic is in play when we talk about infrastructure.
0: Right. That's very true. Yeah, that's a good point. I want to ask a, a practical question about how sausage is made here. Because it seems to me like if I if you and I sat down, we would start with a list of the needs. And then we would say, okay, you know, here's here's how much money those needs are going to require. And we would come to this recognition that. In order to keep doing what we're doing, we're only able to fund like 20% of what we need. So we, we basically like would need a different system, like we would need a different approach. It feels to me like what has happened here is they've started with a number. And I don't know where that number is arrived at. I don't know if it's a politically palatable number or if it's an economic number or what it is. And then they've said, how do we divvy up this number, in a sense, inadequately across all these different needs? Is it really the latter, and am I like misstating what's actually gone on? Because that that seems like a really chunky way to make policy.
1: I think that that's true. I think that a lot of the debate is around how do we get to a number um, that people can be comfortable with, right? And a lot of debating of the number, and and we lose track of like what it, you know, and then we argue what, what where does it go. And I think you're right. I think that is a mistake. The question is, what do we need? I think what's hard about that is it would almost inevitably require both. It would both lead to a bigger number and have to and a change in business, and a change of business, right? It would both right. lead to, it, would, it would require more money and you have to spend it differently. I think encouragingly, that's the conclusion you saw the house come to when they started with exactly that kind of uh, philosophy and that kind of approach. So I don't think no one's taking that approach in Washington. I just don't think enough people are taking that approach in Washington to get to the right get to the right answer there.
0: I do think this is where a group, a group like Transportation for America, which I have come to really deeply admire, but I, I think if we went back, you know, six, seven years ago, I kind of felt a little bit at odds with because I, we weren't finding like common ground in our, in our way of analyzing these things. It was like we just want more money for stuff. And my argument was yeah, we, we need a lot more money. But we can't do it this way. Like we have to change, and I kind of feel like maybe I have, uh, and, and to an extent, Strong Towns has kind of softened on the rhetoric about wasteful spending. Uh, while I've seen organizations like like Transportation America and others kind of soften on the idea that we can just solve this through more spending. Do you think like the advocacy space can actually get to that point broadly, where it's not a matter of Okay, I'm a, I'm a limited government person, so just starve the beast versus, you know, I'm a, just a policy pro- just fund everything. To me, those, those both seem like intellectually bankrupt kind of approaches.
1: I Well, one, I think that Transportation for America's advocacy around transportation um, over the last year has been really impressive. I think we've talked about them previously, actually, on way old pods, if people go back far enough, <laughs> where, we, where we had difference of opinions there. And I, I genuinely like what they're doing is, uh, is important, is valuable, and it's very different. So every, every once in a while people tell us like, hey, Strong Towns, why don't you go become like a lobbying organization? And we're like, eh, that's not really our strength or like what we're best at. And um, it's really exciting to see a group doing such great work. That really aligns with I think the approach that we'd want to take. So I find that really incur- I find that really exciting. Agreed. Um, yeah, and like encouraging and like in a huge fan of what they're doing. And you know, people should support strong towns. People should also be supporting groups like Tea for America and that are really like bringing that fight to DC and helping like get it. And it's part of why a good House bill got through was because of advocate. You know, a, a much better House bill got through was because of uh, the advocacy of groups like Tea for America. So that's my that's what I would start with saying. And then is this inevitable that we'll never get there? Um, no. I I mean, again, I, that's why I brought up like this idea of like criminal justice reform. If you go back to the to the nineties or even early two thousands, the idea that either party would agree to being quote unquote like soft on crime and like reforming like drug laws, right? Was just kind of laughable. It was an area of like deep agreement. And if you look at where those votes came, it wasn't like it was um Democrats versus Republicans, or even like um, you know, I think sometimes wanna simplify these things down. Um this was an agreement of, of black Democrats, of white folks in rural communities, uh, broad agreement of like, of like we need to you know, of how to approach these issues of criminal justice. And now we actually see again, really broad cross agreement, but in the exact opposite direction. And so I have to believe that's possible in something like infrastructure spending too, where I see how people's various ideological like, approaches could come together to make it work. One of the things that's most powerful around all these, inf- like politically in all these infrastructure conversations is people wanting things to work, right? And, and that's similar to like the criminal justice conversation too, I'll say, where people just want to be safe, right? Everyone agreed, I just want to be safe. How can I be safer? And this conversation is, I just want things to work. I just want to be able to get around my community. I just want to create wealth, right? And in that conversation, we figured out that actually what we were doing wasn't making us safer. And it was actually like, it was destabilizing us and actually making our communities less strong in a a totally different way around those issues. And I'm hopeful that we can have that same kind of consensus breakthrough around our issue. And I think there's really a roadmap there of how to get there. So I don't think it was easy. I think it's hard. I think it's going to take groups like Tea for America doing things in DC. I think it's going to take groups like us going out and talking to people widely and building that consensus out in communities across the country. Um, And I'll say this, um, and I think we should turn to this for just a minute here at the end here that I think we're talking about too is how local government and how states choose to spend this money that's inevitably going to end in front of them with a lot of room for them to make decisions is really going to matter, right? States can still choose just because all the money's not in the dedicated pot for, for, for tying communities back together. My understanding is state's actually still have a lot of flexibility that they could put more money into that pot, right? So, They need to do that. Cities, when you're looking, if you're a city leader or you're a city activist or you live in a city, like most of us do, right? Over 80% of the people in the country live in a city of various sizes. What are the projects that are going to help restore your city? And how can you make sure um, right, one of the things that's nice about this bill is that the money goes out over multiple years. Right, it doesn't all go out next year. It's not—it's not a rush out um, like the Obama stimulus was, where the money's going to be out in communities has to go like as quick as possible. There's actually a time frame here, so there's so you don't have to like rush for the immediate shovel-ready projects. There's a chance for communities to put together the right projects and to make sure they're actually projects going to restore your community, and bring things together. And so, I think it's important that where these bipartisan agreements have failed so far, and if it can't get better, and even if it can get better, frankly, for cities to really step up into leadership here and to really actually do some of that restorative work. And for all of us where we live, to demand that of our of, of our cities, but also of each other and ourselves, to actually be really looking critical at this and say like, okay, what are we gonna do with that slice that comes to our city? What are we gonna do with the millions of dollars that come in where we live? What kind of things are we gonna apply for money for? And are they going to be things that just keep this thing going that ultimately are going to make our community poorer in 20 years? Um, are they going to be the same ways of ignoring communities that have been that have been asking for and for help and pointing out how they're being damaged? Are we going to listen to those voices? Are we going to work with those voices? Are we going to work with people in communities and actually um, heal them? Or are we going to continue on the same track? And so this conversation is really going to shift from a place where we can all sort of throw up our hands and say, oh, there's D.C. again. They just got to an imperfect solution once again. And it's going to be on us not to just like perpetuate that at the local level and to actually like step up as leaders in our own right. Very well put. Thanks, John. I I want to switch to the down zone now,
0: the part of the program where we we talk about things that are going on, reflect a little bit. I've got a great book I want to share, but John, let's first, uh, what do you got going on in the down zone this week?
1: That's good. You go to me first because yours will probably be like interesting and profound and (laughs) well-read. And mine, as always, is frivolous. Um, and what is my frivolous thing that I'm obsessed with right now is is the uh, Apple TV Plus show Schmigadoon. What is Schmigadoon, you ask me? Uh, yeah, uh, I've never heard of this. It's a parody of partially Brigadoon, but really old school musicals. The plot is basically that these two New Yorkers find themselves trapped inside of a musical and can't leave until they find true love. And that's as much as I'll say to not do any spoilers there. But if you love sort of those old musicals, the singing in the rain, the music, Man, (laughs) the, uh, you know, Brigadoon, of course, I'm trying to think of more of them here, but there are so many of these, right? These old sort of classic musicals. If you love those sort of things, then you're going to love this show. And if you love making fun of those things, you're also going to love this show. And if you love neither of these things, then fine, this isn't the show for you. But you know who it is the show for? It's the show for me, and I'm loving it. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you.
0: I'm glad you found something that makes you happy like that. I was given for my birthday a book by. Uh, let me let me make sure I get that guy's name right. I, I know what I just. So want you're to already
1: say. trumping me by going to a book instead of just watching uh, streaming television here. No, it's <laughs> fine. It's fine. I knew
0: this would happen. Andy Weir wrote the book The Martian. And I don't know if you read the book, The Martian. See the movie, The Martian, John?
1: I've seen the movie. Why would I need to read the book now? See, are you not telling this for me telling you that I literally (laughs) want to watch a TV show about musicals a parody of musicals? Like,
0: you know. Okay. The Book of Martian is really smart. And the the cool thing about it is that the guy writes science-y stuff, but he writes it in a way that is really accessible and really kind of fun. And I don't know if this is like his second book or if he's had other books in here, but this is the second one of his I've read. It's called Project Hail Mary. And oh my gosh, is it good. I started reading this uh, earlier this week and it's been really hard to break away for anything. It is a great page turner about basically this uh, microbe that has invaded the sun and is dimming, slowly dimming the sun. And this guy gets sent across the galaxy, literally to another sun, to figure out what's going on and try to solve this in a Hail Mary attempt to save mankind. And it is riveting. It is well written. I can't wait till it becomes a movie because it is so good. If you like The Martian, you would love this book.
1: And I know with him, right, he is known to not, now I'm going to reveal that I actually do follow it a little bit more, but he's known for just like really researching the heck out of things right yeah. like part of like the martian and like his work that he did on that which is like as a blog and like a diary at the time then became a book afterwards Is just known for like really like interviewing scientists doing the research trying to actually understand the things and so it's this very like science fiction that actually is also helping uh is built on understanding it and it's speculative in some ways but also very like firmly rooted
0: there's no like huge uh physics leaps and where there is a, a physics leap, like in this one, there, there's a little bit, but he explains like, you know, things that we maybe got wrong. He speculates a little bit and it's, it's fun. I mean, that, that is, I think that's the fun part about it is that, you know, when you read the Martian, he grows food on Mars and like, how does he do it? Well, he has to take, you know, basically the manure, (laughs) the, the human waste from the waste compactor and put it in the soil and go through all these. And so it's, it's, uh, You know, could we do this? I don't know. But he walks through like a scenario where we could. And it's in that sense, realistic, more realistic than, say, Star Wars or or something like that uh, in terms of a, you know, sci-fi fiction kind of thing. So, so
1: you want, you want your federal policy better researched. You like your science fiction (laughs) research. Basically what I'm hearing is you're just saying, as usual, Chuck, you're just saying, I want people to do the math, whatever I'm Mm -hmm. reading, whether it's a bill or a novel is I just like the math to be done here. That's what, that's what I'm hearing here. Yeah. And I'm I'm just saying, I just want to hear people sing. You know, I just wanted to sing off the page, um, be a little more inspiring.
0: Well, then I think what we should do is you and I should go to back to Disney World and ride on uh, the uh, the the Millennium Falcon ride and maybe we can get it into Chewbacca Chewie mode, is that what it's called?
1: what was that called? Was it Chewy Mode? I think where the people can remember what, yes, this is what, so this is what Chuck and I do. If you're wondering, what does it mean to be a Strong Towns (laughs) board member and work closely with Chuck? Um, (laughs) Sometimes we talk about policy, but mostly we talk about Disneyland rides and Uh, the secret ways that you can unlock new modes on them, um, which is probably a whole down zone topic all on its own. We'll have to do that next time. We'll have to do that.
0: All right. Thanks, John. So nice to see you.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here
0: take care everybody and keep doing what you can to build a strong town see you next week